0: Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. Speaking to Chief Ministers of the States earlier this year, Prime Minister Narendra Modi declared that he wanted India to become a $5 trillion economy by 2024. This vision was also reiterated by the finance minister, Nirmala Sitharaman when she presented her first budget a couple of months ago. But the Indian economy is also undergoing a noticeable slowdown. Investment growth remains weak and consumer demand sluggish, with reports of significant job losses in the economy. All this has kicked off a debate among economists about whether the slowdown is cyclical or structural or perhaps both, and how the government should respond to this situation the larger global context isn't particularly supportive either. The US-China trade war has even escalated a notch in the past weeks and certainly shows no signs of abating. To discuss these issues with us today, I'm delighted to have with me Professor Indira Rajaraman. She's a member of the 13th Finance Commission, whose recommendations covered the years 2010 to 15. Earlier, from 1976 to 1994, Indira was on the economics faculty of the Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore, And from 1994 until her retirement in 2007, she held the Reserve Bank of India chair at the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy in Delhi. Indira is also a regular columnist and commentator on economic affairs, and she writes regularly in the newspaper Mint. Indira, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you. Let's start with the economic slowdown. Now, if we think of the economy as moving on four wheels, which is public investment, private investment consumption and net exports, it does seem as though at this point of time, all of these wheels are running slowly and seem to be slowing down still. The downward trend in private capital formation continues. Public investment is constrained by the need to keep fiscal deficit in check. Exports have taken a hit, partly because of the global situation. And more recently, consumption too seems to have slowed down. Against the backdrop of this sort of picture, how do you read the state of the Indian economy today?
1: I think it's useful to um, look at the issue of whether the slowdown is structural or cyclical. The surprising thing is that for the last year and a half, capital utilization in the manufacturing sector in India has actually risen and is hovering around 75%, which is the long-term average. When this is the case, one would expect that private investment would rise because it always rises when the long-term average is reached. This being an average, it's an average across sectors where it might be 100% and they absolutely have to invest in order to increase capacity and so on. But that's not happening. And how do we know it's not happening? I think it's best not to look at the GDP figures, which are challenged to a large extent. It's useful to look at domestic production of capital goods and import of capital goods. And Surprisingly, over the same period over which capital utilization has has risen to a sort of stable 75%, um, both of these have decelerated imports of capital goods and domestic production of capital goods. And in the last few months, their growth has gone into negative territory, which is to say that it has actually declined relative to a year ago. So this is terribly surprising. Uh, It does seem to imply that private investment is impeded. Uh, by um, lack of confidence in the future.
0: So is it just animal spirits uh, not sort of rising up as much as they should?
1: Uh, we don't know what it is, uh, we have to guess. Um, many people believe that uh, the solution for this is to reduce interest rates, to have more monetary easing. Uh, and uh, there are many voices calling for aggressive monetary easing. Uh, my, my voice is not one of those, uh, because I see a lot of structural impediments which need to be corrected uh, before we can expect that just a drop in interest rates of, let us say, 100 basis points will actually get investment going.
0: So I want to focus a little bit on the private consumption story. Particularly, I know it's a short term, sort of just maybe the last couple of quarters kind of um, data. But in recent years, private consumption has been the main engine of growth, uh, at least over the last uh, four or five years. Uh, and But here we see uh, there is a decline in private consumption. And we see that happening uh, across a range of products from, you know, two wheelers and four wheelers on the one side to fast moving consumer goods on the other. Uh, what, in your view, are the reasons behind uh, this slowdown in consumption? Um, you know, is it lingering effects of earlier policies like demonetization and, you know, the rollout of the goods and services tax? Or is it something else that is sort of affecting consumer demand as an aggregate?
1: Um Several things contributing. Um, As you know, there is an automobile story, uh, which many people say is a result of young people not wanting to buy automobiles anymore and wanting to move to Uber and Ola usage. Uh, So so they're talking about a structural change in the pattern of usage uh, and, and purchase of cars. Um, there is a biscuit story. As you know, Uh, biscuit manufacturers are complaining that rural demand has slowed down substantially. Um, That seems to be a result of the very slow growth of rural wages. Um, So each sector has its own story in terms of why consumer demand has slowed down. But as I said earlier, um, it's difficult to address this on a sectoral basis. Uh, You have to look, as I said earlier, the conjunction of Capacity utilization being on an average at its long term average and investment not rising to the occasion. So we have to be forward looking in this. Why is investment stymied? There are structural impediments, as I mentioned. And these absolutely need to be corrected. It's not as though a little push here or the uh, government lifting the ban on purchase of new cars is really going to set us going.
0: Right. And, and if you were to sort of identify, uh, say, three or four headline things, which are, which are the kinds of issues which need to be tackled in order to get the investment going again, what would those be?
1: Um, first and foremost, um, India suffers acutely uh, from a, poor, a, a very poorly developed and weak corporate bond market. Um, In the rest of the world, it's the corporate bond market which does the heavy lifting in terms of financing long-term projects. Um, Banks uh, provide working capital loans and they finance small projects. And just to give you uh, some comparative figures, uh, just looking at other Asian countries, the stock of corporate bonds um, as a percentage of GDP is 80% in Korea. Uh, It's in the neighborhood of 40% for Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong. It's at 5.5% in India. So it's a huge, huge uh, gap. And unless this is addressed, unless what impedes the development of the corporate bond market is addressed meaningfully, we're just not going to to get investment off in the kind of ways we want. And this is what we really want to do if we want to pull the economy out of the doldrums. We have to get large investment projects going. We have to let the multiplier generate the incomes with which biscuits and automobiles will be bought. So it's really the large infrastructure projects that we have to look at. And for that, the corporate bond market needs to be uh, pulled out of its uh, present somnolent condition.
0: Right. And do you think there is a case to be made for uh Thinking about development banks uh, more broadly, I mean, the East Asian cases, as well as older 19th century cases like Germany, uh, are good examples of uh, state sort of supported development banks, really bankrolling big infrastructure. Whereas at least in the last 15 years in India, we've tried this private public partnership models, right? Um,
1: We had development banks, Uh, we had, um, you know, ICICI and IDBI and so on, and they failed spectacularly. And that gets me to the second structural uh, uh, impediment in India, which is that Uh, because of our history, we have very poor Uh, capacity for risk assessment in this country. Uh, Remember that uh, until we had the reforms in 1991, uh, we had industrial licensing and and a project which had an industrial license was automatically funded. Uh, So the task of due diligence was being done within government by bureaucrats, essentially. And once they approved and gave a license, the, the project was funded. And even after 1991, unfortunately, we haven't been able to move away from that. We have a very, very limited pool of qualified Uh, professionals who can do risk assessment. And it is this limited pool which has to supply people both to banks for their due diligence departments as well as to credit rating agencies. And uh, we have had spectacular credit rating failure in this country. There was in the US too in 2008, but that was, you know, newly developed products which weren't understood and so on. But here's standard credit credit rating. Uh, For instance, in the ILNFS uh, failure in November 2018, if you remember, it was the corporate bond market which saw the crash coming and credit rating agencies followed. So they should have been leading. Uh, So we have poor risk assessment capability. And it is a historical legacy from the time when, you know, uh, risk assessment didn't need to be done. It was done within government by bureaucrats. So to answer your question, I don't think development finance institutions are an answer because they too, if you remember, crashed very badly. Their NPAs were huge and they were bankrolled by the taxpayer. And finally, it was decided not to have those institutions.
0: Right. So, so beyond corporate bond markets, what else do you think are the kinds of reforms the government should be looking at at this point?
1: A major reform which has to originate within government itself um, is the whole business of delayed payments by government. This has taken the form of a disease. What happened after the Fiscal Responsibility and Budget Management Act was enacted in 2003 was that, Fiscal responsibility was reduced to a matter of watching the fiscal deficit. And if the fiscal deficit threatened to go out of control or off target, what would be done is that payments would be delayed and rolled over into the next year. And as you know, once you do that, the next year is going to suffer. Uh, And so this this problem is never really resolved. They have to delay payments in order to accommodate the delayed payments from the year before. And so this has uh, reached a point where, once again, let me refer to the ILNFS crisis. Uh, One of the reasons that they plunged into uh, default was because they were not paid by the National Highways Authority for a road that they had constructed. The problem with this is that it is disguised um, as not a delayed payment, uh, but an accusation that the supplier has not built uh, a proper road, that the the work was substandard. And then it's referred to arbitration. And it's well known that arbitration awards are you know, something 50% or less of of the total at at issue. Uh, So um, I know of infrastructure companies in India which refuse to have any engagement with government at any level, state governments or central government, simply because of the delayed payments. And this is a disease which has reached right down into local government. So for instance, after the 14th final Commission, when local governments were given very large grants, some states did not pay local government their full grants, uh, but sequestered an amount which they owed to power companies and water companies and so on. They were not paying their utility bills. So uh, this is a country where uh, irresponsible government has uh, resulted from, unfortunately, fiscal uh, uh, discipline acts. You know, uh, uh, it's a way by which you conceal fiscal indiscipline. um, And unless a correction is set in motion by the centre, which... I'm happy to say um, the current f- uh, finance minister has taken cognizance of in her most recent growth boosting measures. Uh, she, has, she has said that, and in her budget speech too, uh, she mentioned that delayed payments would be addressed and would be taken up at the level of the cabinet secretariat and so on. Um, I have problems with that, which I can go into if you like. But um, government so far has been part of the problem. And if it wants to be the solution, it has to
0: take care of the problem that originates from it. Right. and But the government has a problem on its hands, right? I mean, there's a lot of clamour uh, from corporate groups, from various other kinds of uh, you know, uh, constituencies which have a voice, uh, asking for the government to do something to tackle the slowdown in the here and now. Uh, and, and it is in response to that that the finance minister uh, seems to have announced a series of measures which came on the back of budget, including a few which seem to have rolled back some of the initiatives that were announced during the budget. But that's fine. Uh, But do you think the government has the wherewithal in terms of fiscal space, in terms of the ability to actually push through the kinds of things that can have an impact on the immediate slowdown that we're facing?
1: As I said, uh, you know, where a structural impediment in the economy originates from within government I would have liked the finance minister to to be upfront about it and say that we have been delaying payments um, and we are going to stop this. Now, if you're going to stop this, this is going to call for an immediate correction. And I would like to hear a transparent um, admission that um, another 1% deficit will arise because of this. And we are going to do this once for all correction. But I don't see this forthcoming in quite the way uh, that I would like it to be. Uh, what has been said um uh, is uh, is that you know delayed payments will be taken care of the cabinet secretariat level in the bu- budget speech she had said something more promising she had said that there would be a payments portal where um all payments due would be would be put up on the portal and once they were paid uh, the, the date of payment would be on the portal Now, that is the kind of transparency we want. And once that happens, believe me, uh, once, you know, infrastructure building firms like ILNFS, which is which is now, uh, you know, in the doldrums. But um, uh, if if it were alive and other such firms would would go running after government because government is a source of huge contracts uh, for for highway construction, port construction and so on. But but they're not picking up on that. Because of delayed payments. So there has to be a recognition that problems originate from within. And it's not just a matter of uh, announcing a a hundred lakh crore program of infrastructure building. You have to solve this problem before firms will actually execute those projects.
0: That's right. But the problem that, you know, the former chief economic advisor, Arvind Subramaniam, identified as a sort of twin balance sheet problem still remains. Uh, you know, we've had the insolvency and bankruptcy code sort of coming into play. But at least in the way that the legal process has been playing out, it does not seem like the process has given us time-bound results in the way that the act envisaged when it was being passed. And as a result, a lot of the infrastructure players and other companies which are caught up, you know, thinking particularly in the property markets, mm-hmm. are bleeding value as this process gets dragged along. And that seems to be a huge drag on the economy.
1: First of all, um, all uh, credit goes to the present government for having actually enacted something which should have been done, you know, 25 years ago at the time of reform um, or soon after reform, uh, when it was clear that once you dropped industrial licensing and facilitated industrial entry, you had to at the same time facilitate industrial exit. Otherwise, you were not going to have rational resource allocation in the economy. So um, for some reason, once again, I hope a historian will look into this, why this didn't happen. Incidentally, there are are, uh, political scientists looking into why the corporate bond market is not developing in India. And the equity market has, spectacularly, as you know. Uh, so um, these are all you know, political economy issues uh, which need to be looked at. But anyway, finally, the IBC was enacted. But when it was enacted, once again, there was a capacity constraint. There weren't the kind of professionals, the resolution professionals that you needed. There is a huge insufficiency of that. Uh, and uh, as part of skilling India, this huge queue, uh, there, there is a problem, there is a plumbing problem with IBC. There are cases lined up, uh, they're not able to uh, get any attention until the cases in process of resolution are, are pushed through the no, That's right.
0: Uh, in fact, my understanding is that. A lot of insolvency resolution professionals being appointed by the government are chartered accountants, and they are being now asked to sort of reconfigure, you know, these industries which have so conglomerates effectively.
1: Um, these are uh, very highly priced, e- even in the even in the developed world, because they are they are few and, and far between to find. But you really needed to hire one or two crack. Professionals to 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 solve this plum plumbing issue. You know, when you're when you're bringing in the IBC, uh, which is overdue by twenty five years, uh, you have to recognize that there's going to be
0: uh, you know a huge queue. You referred earlier to monetary policy, uh, and you said that there there is this demand for you know a more aggressive sort of uh, you know path towards cutting down rates. And the RBI has already sort of embarked on the path. We don't know how far down the road they are. Uh, I think there's certainly been a course correction from the earlier monetary policy committee sort of take that, you know, inflation targeting had to be done in a somewhat much more aggressive way. I I think they've stepped back from that and said that there are other things to sort of uh, watch out for, uh, especially in terms of value creation in the economy. Uh, But where do you think the problem is? I mean, there is a lot of discussion amongst economists about whether, uh, you know, the headline rate cuts by the RBI are actually transmitting into rate cuts as far as uh, accounts are concerned. We know very well that our banking system is heavily dominated by consumer deposits uh, rather than any other form of lending. Uh, so where do you think the sort of problem lies, which is to say that despite such lowering of rates, we don't seem to be translating into uh, sort of new uh, lending and new borrowing by corporate players themselves?
1: Yeah, Um once again, you know, this keeps coming back to the same structural impediments in the Indian economy. Uh, monetary transmission is impeded. Um, by the fact that um, there is a high, uh, so so um, on top of the repo rate, which is an overnight rate, um, there are two margins uh, which are added on uh, before the final lender uh, is is actually given his loan and knows what interest he'll be paying. Uh, one is, is the term premium, uh, because the repo is an overnight rate, so you have to add on the term premium. And there's also a credit premium, uh, which is a function of the Uh, banking systems assessment of the credit worthiness of the borrower. Once again, this comes down to very poor risk assessment capability within banks. What happens is that uh, banks are um, so ill-positioned in their ability to distinguish between borrowers in a nuanced way that they tend to set the credit premium very high, building in essentially a risk premium against default you know they're not able to distinguish very carefully between borrowers uh, so they will just slap on a huge credit premium he who can't pay that high interest pays he who falls by the wayside defaults and and the person who's who's paid is that what is earned from him is used to you know set off the 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 uh, losses from the defaults so uh, there there are uh, structural problems in the financial sector in its ability to intermediate between the ultimate borrower and the ultimate lender. Uh, and um, for some reason, this problem has never been fully recognized for the problem that it is. Um, and uh, what has been attempted over the years has been to get very good finance professionals, like, for instance, Viral Acharya, into his Post as deputy governor of the Reserve Bank, or for now the chief economic advisor. Uh, He's again a very good finance professional. Uh, But you don't need just those people at the top, Uh, you need to have a whole training program uh, in order to equip banks in their task of risk assessment. Uh, Now, this is obviously going to take a long time. Uh, So uh, that's one of the reasons why people looking at this problem say, just reduce the repo rate by, let's say, um, 100 or 150 basis, really crash it. Uh, So that even after you have added on this overstated credit uh, margin, uh, lending rates will still come down. And, um, uh, you know, borrowers and the margin of whether to go in for a small project or not will still do so. But remember, we're still left with the task of having to take care of banks who are lending for large infrastructure projects, uh, infrastructure projects which will have a life of 25 or 30 years. And so banks are still being asked to do maturity transformation. So we have to get to the task of really repairing the corporate bond market with an, with, with immediate attention. And uh, the, the, the first thing that has to be done is to improve secondary liquidity in the market so that people don't have, once they bought a bond, they don't have to hold it to maturity. They can sell it uh, if they want, if they need liquidity. Unless you ad- address secondary liquidity in the corporate bond market, it's not going to take off. Unless you do that, you're not going to get monetary transmission because it's corporate it's the corporate bond market that has to do the heavy lifting in terms of getting infrastructure off. And unless you get infrastructure off, you're not going to get the kind of aggregate demand that you need in the economy. That will do it through the multiplier effect.
0: Right. And, I, and I suppose a prerequisite for rebuilding of this or whatever, to get the corporate bond markets really off the ground is to sort of get banks, particularly public sector banks, out of the infrastructure That's lending right. business where the asset liability mismatches are uh, of very long-term nature and That's it's right. very difficult for them to right. uh, operate in that domain. Right. So, so the one consistent theme which seems to be coming out of what you've been saying is focus on structural bottlenecks and focus on improving human capacity within the system uh, at various sort of points to take care of these choke points and to be able to sort of uh, get investment flowing again. All right, uh, let's move on uh, to the RBI itself. Uh, You know, just just a couple of days, and we are recording this on the 29th of August. The RBI uh, has announced that in accordance with the recommendations of the Jalan Committee, it is going to transfer 1.76 trillion rupees to the government. Now, how do you see this move? Uh, Will it give the government more headroom to jumpstart some degree of public investment, especially in the infrastructure space?
1: Yes. um, uh, As far as the the routine transfer of of surplus is concerned, um, as you know, that that sum of 1.76, it's a sum of two components. Uh, There is a 1.23 trillion, uh, which comes from surplus transfer this year, and there's a 0.53 trillion uh, which is a surplus from, uh, from which is a past uh, stock, which is being transferred. So there are these two components, 1.23 and 0.53, which adds up to 1.76. Now, out of the 1.23, 0.28 had already been paid as an interim dividend. So that left 95,000 crores, which is due this year. And since 90,000 crores had already been budgeted, uh, clearly the government had some advance intimation that this this big sum was going to come. Uh, They've never had this big uh, dividend before. Uh, It's always been capped at around 60,000 or so uh, crores. But this is already a big bonanza. This this transfer of the current surplus, and then of course over and above that, there was the 0.53 trillion, uh, which is coming from the uh, the transfer of, of the stock of reserves. Um, your question was: um, Should they use this to jumpstart investment? Yes, but there has to be a cognizance by government that if they start infrastructure projects, they are going to pay for it. You know, they are not going to use this for some other politically convenient uh, expenditure. And when those infrastructure companies build their roads, face the cold problem again of saying, you know, we can't pay you. Your work is substandard. Um, so there has to be uh, an upfront recognition by the government of errors made in the past, that those errors will not be repeated, that this sum has essentially been escrowed. Uh, it's if, if they were to say this has been sequestered and this is going to be paid to you if you do uh, good work. Uh, That would, that I think, just the promise of this going into uh, infrastructure uh, would not be sufficient. Uh, It may be necessary, but you also have to have sufficiency, uh, you have to have uh, a promise that government will mend its ways.
0: So I want to shift from the sort of focus on the Indian economy to looking a little bit at the global picture Mm -hmm. and how it bears down upon uh, India's situation today. So one of the things that I think, this government has had a reasonably easy time with is sort of low oil prices, uh, which has helped them keep inflation down and, uh, you know, sort of build their sort of fiscal um, deficit position. Uh, But we have also seen that over the last couple of years, the trade war between us and China has been escalating. And uh, there are premonitions now of a sort of a global economic slowdown coming perhaps later in this year uh, and so on. Now, How do you think all of this is likely to affect uh, India's own economic position, Uh, particularly on the trade front where we have seen a slump in exports uh, for for a duration? Uh, But at the same time, is the trade war an opportunity for India? Uh, We have economists who say that, listen, if global manufacturers are looking to get their supply chains out of China, then countries like India should be positioned well to be able to sort of step into those shoes But at the same time, empirical data shows that countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam seem to be doing much better than us uh, when it comes to some of these things. So how do you see the trade war really impacting on India? What, if anything, should we do to take, uh, you know, this opportunity for getting into the space of Asian manufacturing supply chains?
1: Well, what you said is absolutely correct um, in the sense that, um, you know, this was an opportunity uh, for India to step in uh, where China had been pushed out. Uh, but I'm afraid we've already lost that race uh, because Vietnam and Bangladesh, uh, the countries you mentioned, um, have pushed ahead of us. So, so the issue is, why did they push push ahead? What it is? What is it that, that held us back? Um, I think India has has traditionally been um, uh, been very wooden. Uh, in its approach to exports, to to building into global value chains. Um, it has to be remembered that, that it's not easy to get into global value chains because um, there are product liability issues. Uh, there are um, the large value chain, which is incorporating you as a small element, uh, has to be completely sure uh, that in terms of quality and date of delivery, you're going to be there where you're expected to be. Uh, and, and I'm afraid India does has not established a very good reputation in this regard. Um, Indian exports have largely done well outside global value chains. We have not integrated into global value chains very effectively. And there I would blame, you know, foreign trade establishment uh, we have a network of trade attaches uh, in the major developed uh, country markets uh, like no other. I uh, I know that Bangladesh and Vietnam, for sure, uh, don't have a network like we do. But those trade attaches don't seem to be clued in uh, to uh, the needs of the Indian export sector. And here, I think the problem is... Uh, turf warfare within the government of India. This is another big problem uh, that we have within government. Uh, one I mentioned was delayed payments. The other is warfare between departments of government. So the trade attaches are tryp- uh, typically uh, reporting to a vertical in the Ministry of External Affairs. And they're not linked to the Ministry of Commerce, uh, which is where export and export promotion is being done. Um, and uh, whatever happens in file passage between these ministries, uh, somehow, uh, this network is not clued into the kind of nimble and agile movement that you need in order to position India and move very quickly to get India into a value chain, which is losing a critical China component. Vietnam and Bangladesh are smaller countries. Uh, there's probably less turf warfare within their governments. And so they've been able to run faster than we have. Um, I'm afraid we've lost out. And and GST also, uh, in the in its initial phases... Um, because of the huge uh, lapses uh, between, uh, you know, the, the entitlement to refunds and the actual payment of those refunds by GST, uh, it's, uh, that also uh, pushed back uh, uh, exports at a time when the global slowdown was happening. So I'm afraid we shot ourselves in the foot um, at the time when GST
0: was introduced but is it an irredeemable situation because I mean the reason I ask this question is because um, you know one way to think about exports is that it has got to be an important part of the story of India emerging as a significant manufacturing player in the world which is important from a domestic indian perspective Absolutely. because that's where quality jobs are going to be created right. and as we know jobs have been sort of all in the news that's one of the sort of crying requirements of a young labor force which is coming on stream now so is is it a story that is gone behind some people say we have prematurely deindustrialized is that true um,
1: i don't think it's an irredeemable story because for instance gst ref- refund the gst refund story has unreceived refunds and the delayed refunds i'm glad to say Uh, is in the past, it's history. Uh, Now, uh, refunds are being paid more promptly. But one of the reasons uh, why um, it's going to get time to step back into the race um, is because um, in exports, uh, reputations matter. It it becomes an infection. Um, It becomes contagious. Uh, If one export firm in India fails Uh, then India is written off and they look elsewhere. Uh, So there has to be a very close watch on what is holding exports back, what is holding us back. So it's not irredeemable. It's certainly, um, I mean, at time T equals zero today, we can certainly build ourselves uh, into a big export uh, source, uh, but it's going to take a lot of concerted, very quick action uh, in in cooperation between the ministries of commerce and external affairs to get this thing rolling. Uh,
0: Finally, is there any book that you've read lately which you would recommend to our listeners uh, as they try and figure the workings of the Indian economy and where things are going for themselves?
1: Well, there's a recent book by Arvind subramaniam uh, titled Of Council. It's uh, a collection of his speeches and writings uh, when he was here. Uh, But it covers a number of important, at least two important events that occurred during his tenure. One was demonetization and the other was the introduction of the GST. I had a lot of criticisms about the initial structure of the GST. And I'm happy to say that uh, after the first three months, there were corrections set in, although the corrections happened in a slow dribble and that in itself was a problem. Uh, But um, I think it is useful to see uh, the writings and words of um, a very informed and intelligent uh, official from within the system uh, as it was happening uh, and to get some understanding of why it is that even if you have a very well-intentioned, very intelligent person in the machinery of government, somehow things don't work out the way we would like them to.
0: Indira Rajaraman, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India, a podcast presented every two weeks by Carnegie India. I'm Srinath Raghavan. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.